When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. You're listening to the Book Riot Podcast, a weekly news and talk show about what's new, cool, and worth talking about in the world of books and reading. I am Rebecca Shinsky. I am joined this week by Sharifa Williams while Jeff is out on well-deserved vacation. Sharifa, hello. Hello. I'm so happy to be here. I was looking at my notes, and apparently the last time I was a guest on this show was August of last year. (laughs) So it's my annual appearance. (laughs) That's so perfect. I know Jeff and I usually have like back to back vacation weeks. And I was also trying to remember like, was Sharifa on the show with me? Or was it with Jeff? And I don't think we've been on the show together in quite a while. So I'm really glad to get to do this with you. Me too. This will be fun. Wonderful. And folks, if you are newer to the pod or you haven't encountered Sharifa before, she's our executive director of content, helps determine the direction of all the great stuff that comes out on the site and the podcasts and the newsletters, of which there are many of all of those. And you can hear her (laughs) on the SFF Yeah podcast with Jen Northington. Yes. Yes. Well, before... Before we get into too much news, I just have a a couple quick pieces of listener follow-up. Last week, we talked about a study that revealed what we thought were just bonkers reading habits of Canadians, like that more than half of all Canadians read a book a week. So I would like to thank... Adam, a member of our wheelhouse, the Book Riot Patreon, who took a deeper dive into the data and made sense of it that Jeff and I just like did not succeed in making (laughs) last week, where he was like, I think the question was just worded awkwardly, but it was that half of Canadians like picked up a book in any given week, not like they read part of at, at least part of a book in each week last year, not half of all Canadians read a whole book every week last year. Which wow is an important distinction. I was about to have some real uh, feelings about my own reading habits. <laughs> I know <laughs> we were doing that. Last. I was like, "How can this be possible?" Like the news cycle is definitely quieter in Canada, but I need to know what are they doing up there to make this possible. A book a week is faster than what I'm doing right now in the middle of the summer. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. I don't think I have ever. Well, that's not true. I have definitely read a book a week, but definitely not in recent years, considering everything. (laughs) The deep irony of both living on this timeline and doing what we do for a living and what what people think our reading lives must be like and versus what they actually are. Seriously. Um, We also wondered aloud in that episode if there were good, like, if all these Canadians really were reading all of these books, what book podcasts are they listening to? And again, over at the Wheelhouse, Charlotte recommended a show called Books Unbound, um, which is, according to her, a great podcast focused on Canadian books and reading. So you can check out Books Unbound if you're interested in learning more about what's going on up there in Canada. And before we get into more news of the week, we'll take a moment for our sponsor. Today's episode is brought to you by W.W. Norton and Company Incorporated. 
So Negative Space by Jillian Linden follows a week in the life of an English teacher at a New York private school. At home, her children ask constant questions about mortality and her husband offers occasional counsel between Zoom calls. At school, something happens. She accidentally witnesses an ambiguous, possibly inappropriate interaction between a teacher and a student. But how can she be sure of what she saw? Negative Space is a portrait of a woman caught between the pressures of what's normal and what isn't, and examines what we owe the people who depend on us in a fractured and indifferent world. It's a debut novel and a short novel. It's perfect if you want something quick and easy to carry around, but it's also thought-provoking. It takes place during the pandemic, but it's not pandemic-focused, and it really just looks at everyday anxieties and low-threat situations that have high consequences. So make sure to check out Negative Space by Jillian Linden. And thanks again to WW Norton and Company Incorporated for sponsoring this episode. Today's episode is brought to you by Underlined. Haven't read a Natasha Preston thriller yet? We dare you to try. She's known for her line of chilling young adult suspense novels like The Cellar and The Fear. The New York Times and USA Today bestselling author excels at putting fear into the hearts of her readers. So her newest book titled The Dare is about five friends whose senior prank goes very, very wrong. This is the perfect graduation season read for thriller fans who can handle a good scare. The Dare is now available wherever books are sold. You can learn more more about it at getunderlined.com. So again, this young adult thriller is about five friends with a prank that goes wrong. There are dark secrets, a twisty plot, and creepy I know what you did last summer vibes. So if you, you know, it's graduation season, you want to revel in that, but like make it scary. You know what I mean? Pick up The Dare by Natasha Preston. And thanks again to Underline for sponsoring this episode. All right. We've got like a couple big stories and Mm -hmm. then a couple little pieces of potpourri. So what kind of mood are you in, Sharifa? Do you want to start with like juicy gossip or do you want to jump into stuff? I was about to say juicy gossip just to like, you know, ease us into the big chunky (laughs) stuff. (laughs) And I mean, yeah. I support this plan. (laughs) Okay, good, good. Because I, it's not like this. So I, I found this story. It's the New Yorker, and it's been, I guess, going around. It seems like one of those big stories that comes up, and everybody's talking about it for a while. But it's uh, reported on by Casey Sepp, and it's a story about a series I have heard a lot about. Go ask Alice. Mm-hmm. It's like this sort of classic. Um, very salacious sort of tell-all. It's from the diary of a... It has been advertised as from the diary of a teenager. And so in this story from The New Yorker, how a Mormon housewife turned a fake diary into an enormous bestseller, it basically goes into how this was just one big made-up fabricated (laughs) story. And at first I started reading this story about Beatrice Sparks, uh, which is a great name for a story like this. It truly is. (laughs) It's meant to be. So Beatrice Sparks, who is a Mormon housewife, and um, the person behind Go Ask Alice, name was never on the book for reasons detailed in this 
article, um, but it talks about, and I was like, wow, this is like so juicy. Like you've got all of the the hits of the day. Like I've been watching so many like Netflix documentaries and all these like MLM stories. Mm-hmm. And, and this just has, it hits all of those notes. It's like a podcast you would like, a true whatever podcast you would come across. Uh, and so it talks about Beatrice Sparks and how she kind of fabricated a lot about her life and got into the publishing scene and brought Go Ask Alice to generations of readers who read about this supposed teenager who got into drugs and- And everything else. You know, had everything else, had like just- Everything you could imagine, the nightmare uh, fantasies of every parent of a teenager, probably. And it was basically designed for that sort of pearl clutching. Oh, my goodness. This is what happens when you introduce teenagers to drugs, when they, you know, talk to strangers, whatever. And this is all happening around the same era as, like, the satanic panic. It was toward the late 70s. Um well, it was published in 1971, so we're mm-hmm. a little bit earlier, but it it dovetails into all of these other sort of propaganda scare tactic events that were happening in the U.S. around this time. And I so I started out reading this like, oh, so juicy. And then I got progressively more annoyed <laughs> with the world and these terrible, <laughs> terrible books that get published and just like incite this sort of fear and prey on these terrible tropes and stereotypes and well how did you feel about oh my gosh (laughs) I had seen this in our agenda since earlier this week when you dropped the link in and I was like I'm gonna save that for Thursday morning like give myself Uh time to really enjoy it and then also be fresh for the pod and I I had I think that same journey like my eyebrows just got increasingly higher up on my face <laughs> as I was reading and then I just had a, a, that moment also like this person clearly did some pretty despicable things this is not respectable behavior fabricating all of these things making a ton of money on mm-hmm. these books presenting yourself to be all kinds of things other than you are but then also how liable for it publishing is that that they're just in on it but I had highlighted I think my favorite sentence of this piece by Casey Sepp is describing just the overwrought language and how the Alice character who's unnamed in the so the setup is that Ms. Sparks shows up at a publisher and or like submits this to a publisher and is like I found this diary. It was given to me by the parents of this teenage girl who's dead now. And this is her account of, as you were saying, like falling into drugs and then everything else. And I've added some like stuff of my own because Sparks was or at least claimed to be a counselor who had worked with troubled teens and she was adding color from stories they had told her. Just like, let's publish this and it will warn people off of it. So they published it as Go Ask Alice. And Alice was inserted as the name um, by by a savvy editor who's making a few references to Alice in Wonderland and some other things. And yeah. And Casey Sepp says, that's just the first half of the book, which reads like a collaboration by Dr. Phil, Darren Aronofsky, and McGruff <laughs> the Crime Dog. 
<laughs> that is a great pull quote. I <laughs> like. I wow. love that. <laughs> so it's just like the right amount of scathing and all. I just felt like that was the right level of burn. <laughs> Like, it was. It's the the language that Sepp pulls out and quotes from the book. And I, I remember when I was a teenager, which was in the mid 90s, hearing stuff about Go Ask Alice as like mm-hmm. a juicy thing. But I think it had already risen and fallen at that point. Like my friends were not passing around secret copies of Go Ask Alice, though we did go through the flowers in the attic thing that I think was a rite of passage for folks, yes. our, for folks our age. That one endured from the 70s. But Go Ask Alice had already sort of fallen out of awareness or I don't know been debunked or something but just the the language is not great it feels overwrought but maybe even like more overwrought than what an actual 17 year old's diary was and it reminded me a lot of the um, interior monologue that we get for Anastasia Steele in 50 Shades of Grey where there's oh wow there's just like so much just there's like 19 adjectives for every possible mm-hmm. feeling and it's like oh this is an adult imagining what it's like in a young woman's brain which is just insulting first of all <laughs> it is yes the purplest of prose yes. and that what makes it even i don't know funny is the word but what is even more buckers is that later on they talk about how you know beatrice sparks continued to do this Mm -hmm. and then did this with another young person and this young person actually there's a a quote from the young man's diary that was actually written quite well especially compared and it wasn't Mm -hmm. even used in in sparks and stuff but it was like kids kids don't this is like the saddest version of a teenager and it is (laughs) It's insulting to, like, teenagers. And then yes. it's also, like, the annoying thing is that, you know, we all, we all know now, you know, it's not helpful or honest to feel to fuel fears about, like, mm-hmm. drug use by painting these terrible broad strokes over, you know, disenchanted. Like, poor people, queer people, disabled. Mm-hmm. Like, nobody was safe from the writing of this. No one. Um, so I'm just, like... It was such it did such a disservice. And I can imagine Sparks as somebody and it toward the end of this, it gets to this place of like, you know, she's passed on and uh, what kind of legacy has she left? And I think I can imagine that she is somebody who went to her grave thinking she was doing good Mm -hmm. for people yeah I wondered about that as I was reading it like I came off of this past spring watching all of the shows about all of the like dot-com scandals you know with Elizabeth Holmes and the stuff that went on at Uber and the everything that happened at We Crashed and like the the big or at We Work in the We Crash show the big question at the center of those especially at the center of Elizabeth Holmes and Theranos is really like how much how, how how much did they know and what did they really believe? And it's one of, I think, mm-hmm. one of the questions that we're seeing at the center of like the January 6th hearings right now is like, who knows that they're on the grift and that they're peddling something that's not true? And who really believes in the in this crap that they're saying? And it seems to me like you're right, that she really did believe she was doing something good. And she 
was quite canny, maybe even accidentally canny about it, that the content was so salacious that it served the purpose of both like freaking out conservative parents and serving to them as a warning of all of the ills of drugs and drinking and sex and all of the other things that people don't want their teenagers to do. And then in trying in, in those folks trying to suppress the book or keep teenagers from reading it because they were afraid that teenagers would be excited by it, liberal parents were defending this book of like, well, these stories should be told and it should be read. And so you just had like Streisand effect on on all sides and everybody wanting it to be out there. Meanwhile, none of it is true. And I wish that Casey Sepp, because, you know, we're on a podcast about the publishing industry, had spent maybe a little bit more time or or she's reviewing a book um, that is out now that sort of tries to debunk all of this stuff. Mm -hmm. Um, But I would like to see a little bit more about how this happens in publishing, because something exactly like this hasn't happened, again, to my knowledge. But we do continue to hear stories every couple of years about like some big memoir that comes out that's either like completely falsified or big chunks of it are falsified. And because it's too expensive to fact check all the nonfiction that's published in a given year, like really only a handful of things get that kind of strict scrutiny from publishers. They're just doing the math of like, this seems interesting and we think we can sell it. Let's go. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, yeah. There's like this sort of cyclical, especially more recently, there seems to be this cyclical conversation of like, nonfiction works that, like you said, don't get fact-checked and maybe there are bits and pieces that are fabricated or taken from other sources and taken out of context and all those things. And it is, it's, it's fascinating because I feel like I have learned a lot that I did not know mm-hmm. about the world of nonfiction and publishing nonfiction. And it is also like, Wow, we've got a long way to go because it feels like we only have those conversations when suddenly, like, you know, somebody is exposed as having right. done this. And then we learn this happens all the time, actually. It's just that this is like a bigger high profile case of it. And they got found out. So it's just a hot mess. Yeah, it is know? a hot mess. You know, I think we have the sense that this is harmful in the big picture. Things like this are harmful to culture. They're harmful to how we talk about like practices or preferences or identities that are marginalized or that exist on the edges of mainstream at whatever the given point in time is. And we don't often get to like, we don't usually get to hear about particular harms that are caused by publishing these kinds of things that aren't true or that are in part not true. But as we're seeing a shift towards like folks really trying to hold social media platforms accountable for, you know, saying you can no longer be a neutral platform, that's not a real thing anymore. You're accountable for the consequences of the material that you allow to be published on your space, really looking especially at like Facebook and there's a lot of scrutiny of TikTok. Folks have looked at Instagram and its impact, particularly on teenage girls. I wonder if we will see something like that happen in the publishing world where maybe even a legal case comes to a publisher related to some harm that was caused and what what kind of responsibility they'll be found to hold, if any. I don't know. It's a, I think it's a big open question. Yeah, that's a really interesting one. I, I'm sort of, now that you, you're talking about it, surprised that we haven't seen something like that come out already. But right? It feels like it's just bound to happen because there are actual there's there can be a big impact as 
We can see, I looked up this book on Amazon because, mm. you know, I have a thirst for rage. And <laughs> <laughs> I was just sort of like perusing the reviews and it was very divided, but there were definitely people who were like, I'm basically, I'm assigning this to my teenagers or I'm giving this oh, to, wow. you know, kids of this generation need to read this book. And I'm, I just want to be in there and say, no, please don't. <laughs> Please don't, because it has a real impact. And, you know, I don't think it really, I think it, it can make parents do a lot of silly things, but I don't, you know, they talk about D.A.R.E. and what it actually, if it had any effect on, on mm. keeping kids away from drugs and stuff like that. And I'm like, on one hand, I don't think these books really scare kids away no. from stuff. I think that it is entertainment fodder for them because teenagers will teenager. But I think parents' reactions yes. to expecting their kids to be like this fictionalized character from this book, that can do some damage because parents, you know, they will also parent and sometimes that doesn't look good for the world at large. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it makes me wonder now that this is out there ab about the truth of Go Ask Alice, what, if anything, the publisher will do to acknowledge it. Like, and there are several avenues they could theoretically take, right? Like they could decide to stop publishing it. They could publish a new edition with a big foreword about what we now know, but how this is a significant work and it was historic and here are the reasons it was famous and that we're going to continue making money off of it. I guess they could just continue to ignore it, which it seems like that's what's happening so far. Yeah, <laughs> just, I think so. Yeah, really interesting to see. That's It was a good juicy one. I was very glad that you found that for us this week. <laughs> Thank you. I love to talk about a big gossipy story when I have the opportunity. <laughs> well, before we get into big news, we just want to take a moment to congratulate Gilbert Cruz, who is going to be the new editor of the New York Times book review. Um, Pamela Paul, who I had some hot takes about her hot takes <laughs> on last week's episode. Uh, she left the uh, book review in March. She's become just an op-ed columnist for The Times. And um, Gilbert Cruz had been a veteran culture editor at The New York Times and was among a field of what we understand to be very qualified applicants. Um, he's been spending, he spent several years bringing a lot of changes to their arts reporting over at the NYT and diversifying voices. Um, also, according to this piece, um, shepherding prize-winning criticism and breaking news and doing all sorts of interesting work. And so the Times is excited to see what he will do with books. Are you familiar with his work at all? He was really a new name for me. Yeah, I, I was not familiar. I was actually like, low-key online stalking going to his twitter <laughs> seems like seems like a a legit person i am very curious um you know they insinuate some changes for the digital era or a digital mm -hmm. audience digital age is what they said and i'm really curious about what they'll do and i'm also sad that i didn't pay more attention the Times book section because I want to be able to see what those mm. changes actually look like. But now I feel like I'm just like, I will be curiously entering a different <laughs> age, supposedly, of the book section. Yeah. But I'm, yeah, congratulations to Gilbert Cruz. I will try to learn more about him. 
Yeah. And I think it'll be really interesting to see what he does. Pamela Paul made some big changes in terms of diversifying the genres and really representation of voices that were in the Times book review. Like we we got romance reviewed in the New York Times for the first time under her. And I think a lot of those were really positive things. So there's always more work to do there. But my ears also perked up at that changes for the digital age hint. Like, are we going to get New York Times book reviewers on TikTok? Oh, wow. (laughs) That I is, doubt it. Uh... I doubt it. But I, <laughs> a girl can dream. <laughs> I would love to see the day. I mean, uh, there are some news organizations, serious news organizations that are picking up on the short form video. So I would, I would be thrilled. But <laughs> as far as like the genre stuff, they they do say he has deeply catholic tastes which apparently mm-hmm. means he reads widely so yes maybe we will be seeing more genre representation which is very exciting for me as a mm-hmm. big genre reader and who knows maybe we will be seeing them on tiktok doing some like bookish dances that would be amazing who knows? <laughs> Listening to you say that about genre in particular, I wonder, like, you are much more of a genre expert and fan than I am. I wonder, like, what book or what kind of book would you need to see when you flipped open your New York Times book review to feel like, oh, wow, they're really going into new territory in terms of, like, looking at genre in, in a big way that mainstream hasn't done before? Wow, that is a really good question. Uh, I... You know, I've read a lot of really great novellas that are doing some really interesting things with genre because Mm. I think they're just given more room. So I would love to see like some P. Jelly Clark in there. Like I think that I will be fair and say that I have come across some genre and some books I really enjoy as a genre reader, at least briefly discussed. Mm at the times um but i don't know i feel like i'm trying to think of something really kooky and (laughs) off the wall that is less like i think that they all tend to go toward like the the genre books that really dive into some serious topics but there's Mm -hmm. also some really great genre that is just fun and really nourishing for readers in a different way and I am struggling to think of those books because lately I have only been reading sad pandemic (laughs) genre (laughs) oh no oh no (laughs) but I would love to see more like just fun like if they did if they talk more about things like cozy mysteries as Mm. a whole like I would be thrilled with that because I think that that sort of book doesn't get a lot of coverage in you know these older establishments um but I don't know I'm I'm happy to see any sort of change that takes them into new territories that you know readers broadly enjoy but maybe they haven't felt inclined to represent on their in their paper and on their their site I love that way of thinking about it, like having a serious publication take seriously a genre or a work that's not trying to be super serious, but it just exists for the purpose of 
sometimes we need fun and escape. And those things can be really valid and they can be executed with beautiful craft. And we should talk about those too. Like, I, I think you're really onto something there that we'll know that something has really shifted at over at the New York Times if we ever see the big like 3000 word review of <sighs> a work of genre fiction that is wonderful for what it does and what it does is not trying to be serious fiction. Yes. Oh, I feel like that would make so many authors happy and feel yeah. seen. Well, <laughs> let's light a candle for that one. Yes. And now we're going to take a turn into <sighs> book banning corner. <laughs> we the worst corner. <laughs> truly. We, it truly is. At least we've like cloaked ourselves in hot goss going in. True. True. Um, <laughs> We try not to spend too much time in book banning corner, but there are a pair of stories this week, both reported by our own Kelly Jensen at Book Riot, um, that I wanted to discuss because we've been talking a lot about the efforts of you know, conservative right wing right wing groups, not just to limit the kinds of materials that are available in schools, but to really change the nature of how public libraries function um, and, and how school libraries function as well. But these are we're talking about public libraries here um, in these two pieces by you know, running for local office and, and conducting local campaigns that affect the funding that these libraries get. So the first piece um, is about Amanda Jones, who was the Louisiana School Librarian of the Year. She has been a librarian for over 20 years, serves as the president of the Louisiana Association of School Librarians. So, I mean, she's got some bona fides here. Mm -hmm. And she has been targeted by a group called Citizens for a New Louisiana, along with a local political Facebook group, um, because she gave a speech at her local public library board meeting in defense of allowing access to materials, books, keeping books in the library um, that cover topics that the members of these groups find to be offensive and don't want their children to have access to. And these folks have targeted, these groups have targeted her in really awful harassment campaigns. Not that there's such a thing as a harassment campaign that's not awful, um, but they've made memes about her that suggest that she advocates teaching a sex practices to 11-year-olds, um, that she they've been using transphobic language around uh, how she changed her username on Facebook after the harassment began so that hopefully people wouldn't be able to find her so easily. She's really being harassed specifically because she is going, she's standing up for keeping these materials available and for public libraries being able to do what they're supposed to do. Um, and these folks do not like that she is standing up to them. So now she is taking legal action against them uh, in a slander suit. And the, there's not much information about it yet. Um, she's working with organizations like Every Library and Freedom Fighters that that are helping. Um, there's a GoFundMe that has been set up to help cover her legal fees. And, you know, she's, of course, worried about what's going to happen. She's already being harassed <laughs> and threatened. So what is going to happen as this proceeds? Um, but she is doing this because she wants to protect herself from being silenced and protect others um, from having their First Amendment rights violated in in this way. And I think that having it put together that way really shines a light on just the deep 
irony and sadness of these groups existing saying that it's about their freedom to remove these things, even when they're talking about like, these are biblical issues, like, right, your biblical issues don't shape public policy. And what what they are doing in response is literally silencing other people by by threatening them. It's illegal behavior. It's allegedly illegal behavior <laughs> since we don't, yeah. you know, since we're in we're in that realm. But really scary stuff. And it feels both inevitable and also I'm really sad to see it come to this. Yeah, it's it's the, the sort of thing that really worries me. And it's the reason like stories like this make me really want every organization to just be prepared to rally around librarians and members of the community who speak up in support of the mission of public institutions that are set up to, you know, share books to diverse readers that represent the diversity of those readers. Mm -hmm. And I feel like we see, I don't like to see when somebody is standing on their own fighting the fight. So I was really glad to read that every library and freedom fighters are helping out and that there is a GoFundMe. But it feels like every every other day, I mean, we report, our editorial team is amazing at, at reporting on these book ban situations and it feels like every other day there's something happening mm -hmm. and it feels very overwhelming and it's like we just need to make a concerted effort to support the people who are out there taking a stand and putting you know literally sometimes their lives mm -hmm. at risk um whether that's physically or like their lives and livelihood like their jobs and their sense of safety in their communities and their families' sense of safety. Like, I just want people to, in these situations, to feel supported. And I'm glad that we're talking about these things because it is very important for people to know that this is happening because everybody's community needs to come together when these small groups come out of the woodwork and decide that they're going to spend the precious minutes of their lives making somebody else miserable and taking things away mm -hmm. from people because it doesn't line up with their personal beliefs. It's it's just frustrating. And I feel for, I feel for her mm -hmm. in this situation. And I hope she does get retribution and that she sees her way through this and that her community is better for her standing up. Yeah, she says here uh, in that Kelly quotes later in the piece that what she wants is to see more people get involved. And she says, you start in small ways, sit in the audience of board meetings if you don't want to or are afraid to speak. This is going to take citizens showing up, not just those who are in the industry. And that she specifically notes here, and she's right on, that white people need to speak up and out. Um, I'm quoting directly, historically marginalized communities shouldn't have to fight this fight because the fight is against them. This is their material and their lives. More white people need to show up, speak out and do the work. 
So Amanda Jones, may your efforts succeed. Uh, If you're listening to this and you wish to support her, there will be a link in our show notes to Kelly's piece at Book Riot. And there is a link at the bottom of that piece to where you can donate uh, to help Amanda Jones in her legal proceedings there. The bottom of Kelly's piece here also includes the full text of the speech that Jones gave at the Livingston Parish Library Board meeting late last month that kicked off uh, this whole round of harassment. And that brings us to what's happening in Michigan. Tell me, Sharifa. Well, this one is interesting because it really brings home some of my worries. Uh, Mm -hmm. So in Michigan, there is a public library that might be closing because of some conservative propaganda that's been going around. So it has a lot of the familiar telltale signs of a lot of these book banning stories. In this case, um, it came down to a vote about millage rate, which is a thing I learned about. I have not come up in the public library system at all, but it's the tax rate mm. for this li- this specific library. And because of the votes, the votes didn't come through in favor for the library. And because of that, because there were uh, members of another group, Jamestown Conservatives, which is in Jamestown um, Township in Michigan, they have been spreading around uh, signage and propaganda about the library's LGBTQ plus materials and basically uh, setting up, allegedly setting up some dog whistles about um, grooming and indoctrination (laughs) happening at this light, which is wild. Uh, in the in this piece, it's reported that LGBTQ plus themed uh, works represent 0.015 percent of the collection. So, of the sixty thousand items, ninety of the items have an LGBTQ plus theme. But apparently, this was enough for this group to, you know, uh, make their outcry about indoctrination and grooming public and to try and convince voters to act against this library. And unfortunately, in this case, the votes cast were not enough. And so the library is expecting to have to close because they don't have the proper funding as early as I believe it was fall 2023. And, ah. I local elections, (laughs) local elections. It's so they're so important. They they are, you know, this was a primary ballot measure. These are if you're going to vote in local elections, like the stuff in really small print at the bottom that if you don't study Mm -hmm. up in advance, you don't know what you're being asked to vote on. And these are so effective for folks conducting these campaigns precisely because usually the only people paying attention to the ballot measure are the ones who are really trying to get it through. And unless there's time for folks on the left to organize and create an opposition to it, or as we just saw in Kansas with the vote there to really get a vote no campaign going that will get people who are against the changes to show up and support it. These groups get this through. Like I will say, I don't think it matters whether it's 0.015% percent of the collection or whether it had been 20 percent of the collection or whether there had been one book i think the presence of the one book would have done it for them uh to like you know it's about the library defending these things and the the patmos library as you were saying is going to being able to retain its millage rate through the spring of 2023 
Once that ends, the library will use its $23,000 reserve fund. And then when the reserve fund is gone, that's it. It may need to close the doors. Uh, Larry Walton is the library board president, and he has said that without a second initiative to pass the millage rate, the library could close as soon as fall of 2023, as you were saying, which is really upsetting to to lose a public library that all citizens, when there when there is a millage rate, that citizens pay taxes to support and everyone should have access to, to be able to get materials that interest them, that educate them, that show them the world, that give them an opportunity to see themselves reflected and to understand other people. It's really a travesty. I, I don't know like, you know, the particulars of this county in Michigan and how they're going to go about trying to have a second ballot measure that can reverse this or counteract it in some way. I do really admire what Larry Walton is saying here that um, he says, you know, the, the, this is not about the library getting a wake-up call from its citizens, which is the way that the groups in favor of this have portrayed it. He says, a wake-up call to what? To take LGBTQ books off the shelf and then they'll give us money? What do you call that? Ransom? And then, yeah. right? Like, come on, Larry Walton. <laughs> um, he says, we stand behind the fact that our community is made up of a very diverse group of individuals and that we as a library cater to the diversity of our community. And so, again, Larry Walton May your efforts succeed. Um, we're so grateful that Kelly Jensen is doing this work at Book Riot, digging into these things. And you can click all kinds of links in this piece that will take you to um, further stories and, and getting deeper, more, more deeply involved, especially if you are a Michigan citizen or if you're hearing stuff like this in and around your community, you may still have time to organize to counteract it before it makes its way to, oh, one of our libraries may actually close. Um, really, I mean, really horrifying stuff that you just know if it happens, shakes out in the history books as a moment where the vote was on the wrong side of history. Um, but we've, we've got to get our act together. Yep, we do. Uh, oh, I know. Let's uh, take a cleansing breath. And yes. A break for our sponsor, and we will come back and talk about antitrust lawsuits. <laughs> hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda, you never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Your brain needs support. And new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L-theanine, and caffeine. Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y dot com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Okay, Sharifa. It it's came out several... One. It is a big one. came out several months ago that the Department of Justice was going to sue to stop the planned merger between Penguin Random House and Simon and Schuster on the basis of using antitrust laws as the, the reason. Um, so for listeners, if you needed a, a primer on antitrust laws like I recently did, um, antitrust laws exist to regulate 
entities from being able to concentrate their economic power. Um, sometimes, most often when we see this, it's referring to monopolies, but it can also refer to other non-competitive practices, typically that are jacking, that will result in prices being jacked up for consumers that have some negative impact on consumers. Um, and the Department of Justice has taken a a broader approach to this Penguin Random House, Simon and Schuster merger, because they are saying this is problematic on the grounds of concentration of economic power. If PRH merged with Simon and Schuster, they would produce about 50% of the anticipated top selling books in a given year. And that that phrase or category of anticipated top selling books is a big deal. It's a real focus of this trial, but they're saying it would also result in less competition over titles and um, in fewer authors getting deals of $250,000 or more, which is one of the ways that they are defining how you can tell that a book is an anticipated top seller, and that that would result in readers having fewer choices. Um, they have not really gotten into prices might go up for readers, but it's interesting that this is not just about the concentration of economic power, but that they're also bringing in this will impact authors, this will impact consumers. So functionally, the Department of Justice thinks this merger is going to thwart competition and be harmful to the industry. And now the trial has started. How closely have you been following this? And how closely would you be following it if we weren't talking about it on this podcast? <laughs> That is a great question. That is a great question. I I was curious enough to read the initial opening story, and I do remember that I I read about this incoming a while a little while back, and so when I saw it, it refreshed my memory a little, and I was like, oh, I'm curious, what's happening? Are we actually about to do this? Are we mm -hmm. about to throw down? And so I did read it just for the sake of reading it, but I honestly would not have continued to follow it if I had not <laughs> been talking about it on this show because, you know, it is uh, – it's an interesting – it's an interesting situation. I think it is a novel trial. It's a novel case. Novel, Sharifa. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I swear I'm not trying to be cheesy. That just came out of my mouth. But, you know, it, it's interesting. It's interesting from a legal perspective. It's interesting from a broader perspective of how this, a case like this could have much farther reaching impact than just publishing. Like, you know, we'll, we'll be talking about this, I'm sure. Um, but, you know, with Amazon and with other mm -hmm. big entities like, you know, United Health. And there are so many other big mega corporations where no monopolies are a thing and trying to regulate competition is a thing. And it feels like in some cases, perhaps the clock has run too far and, you know, trying to claw back some of the uh, control like government mm -hmm. control for the sake of consumers, et cetera, is uh, a difficult thing. And this seems like sort of the an entree into trying to <laughs> set the stage for much bigger situations and trials and cases and antitrust suits. So I think, I think it's interesting. Yeah, I think that's a great read on it, that this is the Department of Justice kind of dipping its toe in to see how far it's going to get 
in these cases that antitrust has been a stated big focus for the Biden DOJ. And this is one of the first big trials that we're seeing them bring. So I think it's going to be treated in the news as a bellwether of sorts, whether that's useful for predicting future outcomes for them or not. I'm not sure. Um, I'm uh, multiply on the record here in in past episodes being like, I'm not super concerned about readers having fewer books. There's already a bajillion books published every year and way more (laughs) than than I have access to. I'm having a hard time getting on the like, I'm worried that fewer authors will get quarter million dollar advances as well. Like the government defending (laughs) someone's, I guess, right to have access to a quarter million dollar advance feels complicated to me and and i do understand though that if you're an author and you want as much competition as possible so that you have as high of a ceiling for your book deals as possible this feels like it it limits competition so that makes sense to me from why the department of justice would take that angle and they're getting support like stephen king is one of the folks yeah. being called to testify um i have followed the first couple of days and now we're we're recording this on thursday august 4th it's the uh, third day of the trial um I would not have been following it super closely if we weren't talking about it here. But Publishers Weekly and Publishers Lunch have both been doing interesting coverage. And the the highlight for me really so far was, um, I believe it was yesterday, Jonathan Karp, who's the CEO of Simon & Schuster. So obviously, he's in favor of this merger was testifying and the judge was trying to get him to lock down a definition of what a mid-list book is. Like they're using this 250K plus as the anticipated top sellers. And so of course these are publishing people in the room and they're tossing around other publishing lingo. And he's like, well, you know, a mid-list book, blah, blah, blah. And it kind of comes out like that if you work in the industry, you know, like no one could agree on what a mid-list book actually is. It's just really anything that's not the top, like the big top shelf bestseller that gets the $250,000 advance. And she says, well, like, but the, 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 the presence of mid list implies that there must be a low list, correct? And he's like, no, no, no author would want to be on the low list. So we don't have that. Just basically everybody is on the mid list unless you're on the top shelf. Oh, wow. You know, that tickled me because there is so much that feels and is inscrutable about Mm -hmm. publishing. And to just like, it felt like that was sort of realized for me, at least in that statement. It's like, well, yeah, nobody would want to be on the low list. (laughs) But, you know, we need some definitions here, right? Right. (laughs) Yeah. And she's pushing him. She's like, okay, so is mid list like 100,000? Is it 25 or 50? He's like, it can be any. No, really, lady, it can be anything. Like, and you can feel that, like, the next implied question there is like, okay, so what's the lowest possible advance you give? in a year. And is that still a mid list book? And it's like, well, no, we kind of know privately that it's a low list book. But like the first <laughs> rule of low list is don't talk about low list. <laughs> oh, boy. <laughs> I was uh, deeply amused by it. I think this is going to be really interesting to see play out. And the most interesting piece of commentary that I've seen about it is from Shira Ovid in the New York Times, who very wisely points out that this is not just about PRH and Simon and Schuster and their position in the industry, but about their position 
relative to Amazon and that the big unstated reason that book publishers I'm quoting her directly here, that book publishers want to become bigger and stronger is partly to have more leverage over Amazon. Um, so by far the largest seller of books in the U.S. One version of Penguin Random House's strategy boils down to this. Our book publishing's monopoly is the best defense against Amazon's book selling monopoly. And I think that is the case that Penguin Random House and Simon & Schuster probably wish they could make. But of course, you can't make that case for like allow us to be non-competitive because Amazon is already <laughs> making things non-competitive to really let's make two wrongs and hope they add up to a right. And the way that Amazon is really the elephant in the room and probably the core activating cause of all of this activity to have consolidation among publishers, but that we can't really talk about that because you can't use it as a defense for your monopoly or for your business that violates antitrust. It's, it's really interesting watching everyone kind of bend themselves around the presence of that in these conversations. Yeah, and you can and you can totally tell from some of the convolutedness that <laughs> comes out of these like what what they quote from these trials like it's really interesting to see and read about the responses because it is it's a tricky tricky situation <clears throat> nobody would be on anybody's side of saying you know what we are going to we are trying to create this monopoly because it's the only way we can compete with this other monopoly and mm -hmm. you know amazon's gone so far pretty unchecked in a lot of ways and so it's it's interesting and I don't quite know what to think necessarily or feel about the fact that, well, yeah, it is tough out there, I'm sure, with Amazon as competition and I am sure that they need to figure out some strategies to get ahead of that mm -hmm. situation, but, you know, it's especially as soon as somebody points it out, it's hard not to see it. So I I don't know if they're, you know, winning anybody over with the sort of vague arguments <laughs> they're making in their favor. And I should disclose, I am publishing an anthology with PRH mm. still not super like oh my gosh what's gonna happen <laughs> like oh I need to follow this story but I do find these little bits of it that tie the story to these bigger pieces uh really interesting and I am curious at least about what the outcome will be and what it will mean like how then do we uh how do we solve the problem of Amazon what happens mm -hmm. next who will the DOJ go after if this doesn't pan out like there has to be a next strategy or a plan b yeah I've been really curious and if we have folks who know more about how these laws work than we do listening to this show I would love yeah. you to weigh in at podcast at bookriot.com but I'm curious which outcome of this trial is more likely to result in the DOJ turning and like having a strong case against Amazon next? Would it be success in blocking PRH and Simon and Schuster? Or if PRH and Simon and Schuster are able to merge, and then we have what looks like approaching 
monopoly, 50% of the top selling books in a year coming from one place versus the apparent monopoly of Amazon. Is that more? I don't know. I'm really curious. I don't know nearly enough about that to guess. So folks, if you know things or you have theories, you can email us and and let us know. But I will be following this. I think now that I've read a couple days of the coverage, I think I'm in this for more magic of like people trying to explain inscrutable publishing things to people who work outside of publishing, because that yes. was pretty great. <laughs> <laughs> I love that. And you know, everybody's sticking around. They've been posting so many feature images of Stephen King is like, everybody's got to wait and see what Stephen King's gonna say. So I'm sure a lot of people will tune in. Not going to lie, I am totally going to tune in to see what Stephen King says because I've been sold. <laughs> yes. Well, you know, he knows how to draw a crowd, Stephen King. So it's a good Absolutely. choice on their part. All right. Well, that is the news of the week, folks. You can find all of the links that we've talked about and then a few more background explainery things about this antitrust stuff in our show notes at bookriot.com slash listen. Email us your thoughts and questions, your cases for either direction of this PRH, Simon & Schuster merger, whatever you happen to know about antitrust law at podcast at bookriot.com. And if you want to join us over at the Book Riot Patreon, you can do that at patreon.com slash book riot podcast every member there starting at five dollars a month gets access to these shows early and ad free and then at 10 bucks a month or more you get a bonus episode each week um, the current one that we've got up right now is me and jeff torturing each other with a bookish version of <laughs> f mary kill called collect borrow remainder which i think is the most fun that we've had on one of those episodes so far and a lot of them have been really fun but it was a howling time um we <laughs> We'll have a, uh, an adaptation nation style episode looking at Never Let Me Go by Kazuo Ishiguro coming up in a couple of weeks. And there's all kinds of other stuff in the backlist that you can access there. So join us over there, patreon.com slash Podcast. It's a good time. And until then, we will see you next week. Thanks for being here, Sharifa. <laughs> Thank you. 